Hey, fanboy nation. This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching. Fanboy. 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 A fanboy, etc. Fanboy nation. God, I assume no. Tom. Coming to iTunes and Amazon on Tuesday, September 8th, a documentary entitled The Gathering about Indigenous Americans reclaiming their sovereignty over their... It's, dis- it's, 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 sorry, it's, it's, yeah. just, it's, just, it's just called Gather. Gather, okay. Uh, what did I call it? The Gathering. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a totally different movie. That's a horror film. Yeah. Okay. Uh, three. Yeah, let's do it again. Three, two, one. All right, so three, two, one. Coming to iTunes and Amazon on Tuesday, September 8th, a documentary about Indigenous Americans proclaiming sovereignty over their decimated ancestral food source entitled The Gather, executive produced by Jason Momoa. I have the pleasure of speaking with director Sanjay Rawal today. Sanjay, how are you? I'm great, RC. Thank you. Uh, we know there are going to be people that are going to be cracking jokes. They're going to see your name on, on the documentary going, Sanjay Rawal, oh, look, an Indian helping Indians. Haha, <laughs> all right, let's diffuse that, get that out of the way. Um, this is a topic that is almost never talked about in the United States anymore, and that's the suffering of indigenous Americans. We remember a few years ago, um, about five years ago, when they were trying to build that pipeline through the Dakotas from Canada, and hoses were turned on indigenous Americans in the dead of winter, and nobody said anything about it. So, you know, these are definitely situations that we need to, to keep a foot about. I, I totally agree. I mean, we we all know how little we were taught in high school, so no no blame to be assigned to anyone. But we've been seeing, obviously, in the last few months with the acceptance of Black Lives Matter that people are beginning to recognize legacies of slavery in our democracy and in our economy. What I think we have yet to really talk about is how that early American economy didn't just depend on labor, it depended on land. And that land essentially was stolen from the people that were here first. And unfortunately, that is a part of colonization. Uh, you are of Indian ancestry, so you're all too familiar with hearing stories, possibly from your grandparents and your own parents, about what the British did in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. That's true. I mean, the, our, our film Gather is not so much about the, the genocide, but about the rich food history that's that survived that genocide. I mean, if we look at the global food system, 70% of the variety in it came from the New World, which meant that before 1530, India, my country, didn't have hot peppers. I mean, we're known for spicy food, but we had no spicy hot food then. Mm. We didn't have potatoes. We didn't have tomatoes. Obviously, neither did Italy or Ireland. There were no avocados, pineapples, squashes or chocolate in the world, apart from what existed in this then uncontacted new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I often joke about the reason how England took over the world was because they were in search of a decent meal, and here you are bringing hot peppers that have uh, finally arrived in India. There there we go. I mean, we, 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 we follow a, a few great characters and gather. The primary character is a chef, Nephi Craig, who... You know, it's from the White Mountain Apache Reservation, just east of Phoenix, a few hours. And, you know, in his, in his teens, early 20s, he got the culinary bug, and he began cooking in top kitchens around the world. But like Anthony Bourdain, he flew high, he fell down pretty far, and was uh, kind of stricken with, with various addictions and had to go back to the reservation to sober up. 
And in doing so, he reacquainted himself with food and what it meant to his people. What? Well, first of all, that's fascinating, you know, in itself that people get the culinary bug and want to travel and just try different foods. But what was the inspiration for not only Jason to be executive producer on this, but for you to want to come out and be a part of this documentary? Well, number one, Jason is indigenous Hawaiian, and he's kind of aligned himself pretty powerfully with the movement in Hawaii to reclaim native land. Uh, obviously, people know that in the 1800s, Dole Pineapple, American mercantile interests basically swept into those beautiful islands and took them over uh, by promising the leaders lots of money and by forcibly taking land. And, you know, much of that land has been reserved for non-Hawaiians. It's being polluted. It's being used just for tourism as, as much as we all like visiting Hawaii. But Jason's been, uh, you know, at the forefront of the movement to reclaim Hawaiian sacred land. Because of that, he's beloved in, in North American Indian country. And I think that, that was the, the alignment with the film. On, on my side, I've always been interested in food. I've made a few documentaries, one called Food Chains with Eva Longoria, a few others on non-food topics. But, you know, I began discussing the idea of this film with a few funders and with a few Native American groups. And we all agreed that, you know, the time was right for a film that really explored how the Native American food system basically is the foundation for everything that we eat in North America. Mm-hmm. Um. With something like this, you know, there, there's a lot of political strife going on. I don't care what side of the argument you're on, left or right. Uh, I spoke with a, a commander in the uh, in the Navy just yesterday, and I said, you know, people are too busy being red team versus blue team instead of red, white, and blue team. But there seems to be a movement now uh, in favor of Native Americans, but a bit extreme of those of us, like I'm first generation American. You know, my parents immigrated here. I was the first generation born here. That there's this ideology of calling it decolonization and sending us all back to where we came from. How do we find the balance of not only through understanding of what you guys are doing with Gather and, you know, the food source and and all the influence that it's had on our culinary aspects of, of America, but to find the balance of, yes, this once belonged to somebody else and yes, we had to escape our homelands because they weren't good for us and keep the balance between the two societies. It's a great question. I mean, I think at the heart of it, these movements coming from both Black Lives Matter and from Native American activists aren't about returning to the way things were. I mean, there are some kind of famous posters that people were holding in Black Lives Matter, Matter protests saying that, you know, we're here for justice, not for revenge. Native Americans aren't trying to send people back to where they came from. The the decolonized movement is basically allowing natives to just be themselves. I mean, at the heart of the issue is the fact that those of us who are non-Native American, American citizens, have a lot more rights than Native Americans actually do. They just want to be brought up to the same level of rights that the rest of us enjoy. Just like Black Lives Matter. It's not about, you know, all lives don't matter, but it's like, let's look at those who are oppressed and let's create a real level, level playing field. So when they say decolonize, it's more like just stay out of our business. Allow us to enjoy the freedoms that you guys say that you hold dear. Well, I have a similar understanding of that because as an indigenous Assyrian to the Fertile Crescent, 
we have zero rights uh, in our native uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, the Arabs treat us one way, the Kurds treat us another way, and we've been there for nearly 7,000 years. Um, uh, our identity is listed as Christian Iraqi. We don't even have a right to our own identity in our homelands. So I'm quite familiar with that type of struggle. I, I, I hear you. And, you know, but the, the, but again, the corollary being BLM, one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's achieved a sense of acceptance is because it's found allies. It's found people that have maybe struggled under oppression from a different angle. In this case, you know, white Americans and have realized that everybody benefits with equality. Native Americans have aligned surprisingly with a lot of farmers, um, especially around the, the issue that, that you mentioned, the Dakota Access Pipeline that went through the Dakotas. You know, a lot of farmers were going to be threatened with the, with potential devastation from oil spills. Uh, their water was going to be tainted. You know, their land was also being threatened. And so they aligned with Native Americans because it wasn't so much about the the rights just of one group, but the rights of one group affected the rights of everyone. And then when we come to the food movement, you know, like the Native American food movement is is really, really deep and strong. I mean, if you think about all the stuff we eat in this country, from corn to beans to, um, you know, tomatoes, potatoes, chocolate, those have all existed here for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a... Um, uh, uh, a lesson for us to really understand all the ways those foods have been used and how important they've been to people here for thousands of years. What was, I mean, you went to Northern California, you went to the Apache Reservation, you went all over the country discovering the impact that food has had on our Western society uh, through the origins and the indigenous population. What was the most unique thing that you learned from your research? Well, I, I, this goes to, to the, the, the your, your previous question. Like, we all know that we're on someone else's land here. Um, we might not know the history. Those folks might not even, you know, those, those tribes might not even be around anymore. But we have to ask ourselves, and at the same time, no one's asking us to go back to where we came from, mm -hmm. uh, from the Native American standpoint. Right. So we have to ask ourselves, like, well, what are we, what are we, what are we doing right now to deserve to be on this land? Mm -hmm. And that's the Native American idea of stewardship. Like, they never felt like they owned land. They felt like they were given the responsibility to take care of the land. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that amazed me most is we spend time with a young uh, scientist, a young woman. Um, in South Dakota who grew up on a buffalo farm. And for those who have seen the viral videos recently of tourists getting way too close to bison um, and seeing that, you know, bison are no joke. They right. can run 40 miles an hour and they will tear you up. But this young woman and her, and her father and her brother, you know, had a gigantic bison herd. And they were very, very comfortable, you know, walking through that bison herd. And you got, you got a chance to see like what it really means to have a relationship with animals and the earth. I mean, the flip side is there used to be 63 million buffalo in North America. Right. They ranged from Yukon all the way down to Florida, but they were, they were slaughtered until only 23 individuals remained. So all buffalo herds now have come from those 23 individuals. Right. Um, 
is this is an interesting topic about not you know pro, not necessarily pride in ownership, but being conservators of uh, of the land. This also plays into what we were raised with in the old world. I mean, if you look at classic Abrahamic religions, so if you look at traditional Judaism from the Middle East, uh, Eastern Christianity from the Middle East, Hinduism, Buddhism. Um, I'll even quote St. John Chrysostom, who said 1,700 years ago that, uh, you know, everyone who claims to be a Christian is an immigrant. This isn't your world, you know, so we have to take care of what's ours. You know, we're supposed to take care of this world. Where did the shift from that Eastern philosophy and then in the new world over here, who had a similar mentality, whether it was, you know, polytheistic or not, uh, shift as it went towards Europe? Because Europeans seem to have had that ownership mentality, and it's like, I own it, I'll do whatever the hell I want with it. And that kind of permeated the rest of the world. You know, that that's a great question. You know, I, we can imagine there was a time, it wasn't too long ago, 800, 900 years ago, where everybody all around the world lived that indigenous lifestyle. Even if our ancestors had been persecuted and had been relatively nomadic, like, like Ashkenazi Jews, they pretty much stayed in the same villages for seven, eight, nine generations in a row. And obviously, like with, with your people, in their villages for thousands and thousands of years. And they developed a relationship with that land on a much deeper level than we can imagine. But somewhere around the Crusades, the, the European businessmen who fueled those Crusades and who became fabulously rich, they introduced the doctrine into the Catholic Church that began to prioritize Christian life based on skin color. I mean, as you know, it's like the original Christians, they were not pasty white. But somewhere around 1100, 1200 A.D., uh, Christians who were brown, Christians who were black, were given an inferior status. And out of that came this idea of the doctrine of discovery, which the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Italians used as justification to go to the New World, not just extract tons and tons of wealth, but justify slaughtering the people to do so. And even those who they, whom they converted were considered inferior. So it was around the 1400s and 1500s where this idea of maximizing use of land took hold. And you couldn't do that on the land that you lived on because we know how destructive those habits were. But you could come to the New World and you could chop down entire forests, entire jungles in Asia, you know, kill thousands and tens of, of people in, in with bonded labor to get them to grow cash crops for you, to mine silver for you. And you'd return back home as if nothing had happened. But that's actually a pretty new philosophy. And we've seen how destructive that's been not just to human life, but to the planet. Mm -hmm. And so that point of yours to return back to that ancestral traditional mindset that all of our ancestors had is a pretty important step for our survival, I think. Um, the documentary is only 75 minutes, and I'm sure you've had hundreds upon hundreds of hours of footage. Was there something that when you guys came upon that you're like, we really want it in the documentary, but it's not going to fit the narrative we're sharing, so it might end up as a bonus reel on a DVD? You know, the interesting thing is that we didn't shoot a lot of footage. Our, our DP is a Nat Geo photographer named Renan Ozturk. He was um, one of the, the stars of the documentary in 2014, uh, Meru, 
um, with Jimmy Chin and Conrad Anker. Um, he's a North Face climber. And, you know, we had some pretty specialized gear. And even though we shot the film entirely in the United States, reservations are in the middle of nowhere. It's like for those who, of your listeners who know California as well as you do, you know, the Yurok Reservation is north of Eureka uh, mm-hmm. on the Oregon-California border. We had to fly into San Francisco, drive eight hours um, just to get to shoot. You know, it was similar in Phoenix. I'd go from New York to Phoenix, drive five hours to get to our Apache shoots. Mm-hmm. Um, it was even longer to get to South Dakota. So we really planned and economized our shooting time because it was just so expensive to go on location. We we did spend a year traveling around, however, uh, finding characters um, so that once we, we brought the whole crew, you know, we didn't waste a lot of time and shoot things that we knew we weren't going to use. Um, since, you know, you you do document food and, and the process and everything else that goes along with it, I'll give you an example. Uh, about seven years ago, a a researcher in Iraq found on a stone cuneiform written tablet a a recipe for baklava so there's a 3500 year old recipe for baklava floating around in a museum right now what is the most ancient native indigenous american dish that you were able to try you know that 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 it'll be interesting to frame because uh, you know as opposed to the middle east and to India where, you know, we basically were influenced by the Silk Road and influenced by a lot of other cultures. And so those preparations constantly evolved. Native Americans had so much food around their individual tribes that there wasn't a, a ton of, um, of innovation. I mean, innovation took place over hundreds or thousands of years in the introduction of crops. So that, that's all to say that, like, with the Yurok in Northern California, they feel like they've been eating salmon since their people first got to that land tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, the, the Lakota in South Dakota feel like they've been eating buffalo forever. But the most unique thing that we ate was something called a glosscho. We went on a hunt with uh, an Apache forager, a, a woman named Twyla Casador. And, you know, this type of, of protein was really only harvested in the winter because of, you know, the, 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 the basically these animals are totally clean in December and January. And you didn't want to kill elk or anything else because it was time for them to get pregnant or they might, they might be pregnant. So we, was, we were looking for these creatures which lived under cacti. They were super fast. And, you know, we chased them with sticks and basically, you know, corral them, you know, between six or seven people and then pin their heads down and kill them. When the Spanish first came in the 1500s and saw these, these micro hunts, they were mortified. They were coming from large cities where these creatures were more commonly known as pack rats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these Apache had lived for thousands of years, you know, subsisting on this very high quality, very clean protein in the winter that, you know, essentially was a rat. (laughs) That was kind of the most unusual experience, but also showed that, I mean, you know, from, from, from your people, and I know from, from, from my people, everybody kind of eats everything. 
you know, we might be squeamish seeing somebody eat a beetle, but chances are our cultures have something that's just as gross or disconcerting to other cultures. Right, like sheep's brains, bulls' testicles, things of that sort, right. Exactly. You, mm-hmm. you eat what's around you, and you know how to make it taste good, mm-hmm. or you acquire the taste. Right. And so this particular creature, this pack rat, I mean, it tasted like chicken. Mm-hmm. They they made uh, tamales with corn and mm-hmm. and the meat of these little tiny furry creatures. See, this seems impressive in the idea that what I what I like about the documentary is that I see I get really tired of when people take like this giant Harley Quinn size mallet to try to either guilt somebody into believing a certain way or to feel a certain way or to create shame or whatever else. But what I like about the documentary is that it uses food and food is a gathering point. You know, a lot of people come together at the dinner table in the old days, at least, and they discuss events and, you know, people go on dinner dates. So food is a unifier. And I like the fact that you used food to educate people on not only the suffering of, of these people that they've endured over the years, but how they maintain their identity through their food uh, as well, which is very eye-opening. You know, that's, that's, that's the heart of what it means to be human, right? It's <laughs> like we, we – there's air all over the world. There's water all over the world. But your people live for thousands of years in one particular region – and developed incredibly close relationships with food. What, what, with specific food? Like, if, for example, a kid is born above the Arctic Circle with, to a, an Eskimo Inuit family and they can't digest fat, they're dead and they don't pass on their genetics. But our genetics were, became so specified to the regions that our ancestors originated from. At the same time, very few of us eat those same diets that have given us this sort of genetic strength. Mm-hmm. I, I went to my mom and dad and I asked them, they're both from India, like, as, as you mentioned, and I asked them if they could remember what was in the, the pantries of their great-grandparents. Mm-hmm. So a cuisine that wasn't influenced by the British, wasn't influenced by supply chains, and those dishes were things that I couldn't even conceive of as being Indian food. Mm-hmm. It was so exotic, so hyper-specific to those regions with ingredients that I don't think you could find today in the industrialized food system. Right. But I would imagine you've done the same and asked your parents what their grandparents or great-grandparents might have eaten or fed them. And in doing so, you kind of realize that we've had really, really long relationships with certain types of food. There, there have been, and uh, I, I was lucky because my dad's family were originally farmers. You know, they owned a vineyard, so it was a lot of vegetables. You know, it was a lot of bell peppers. It was a lot of grapes. It was a lot of, you know, cucumbers and so on and so forth. So, you know, the vegetation was already there, and they just continued to harvest it. So it was a lot of – it wasn't necessarily a vegetarian diet. It's just that there was a lot of access to mix beef, chicken, and lamb with various vegetables within the region. Correct. I, I mean, that, that's, 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 that, that's the fascinating thing. It's like those foods as well probably had a deep spiritual significance. It's like when there was a lamb slaughter, there was, there was gratitude. There was an idea that those supplies weren't unending and people understood the amount of time it actually took to 
create those meals from the farming side to the animal husbandry side. Um, it wasn't simply going to Costco or Walmart and filling up a cart or Whole Foods once a week or once a month. Uh, we knew the work and we knew what, what those, what, what that life meant. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. If I had to go out today and kill my own food, I'd probably be a vegetarian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, because yeah. of my, of my level of like, like I, I failed, you know, dissection and biology because it was queasy for me. So I'd end up probably being a vegetarian if I had to go slaughter my own food. I mean, it's funny that, that, that's, ex- I, that's exactly when I became a vegetarian. I, 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 I went to Cal Berkeley as a, <laughs> as an undergraduate, grew up in Oakland. And in my second year, we were killing so many things and actually doing experiments on so many live animals. I mean, like mm-hmm. lobsters and frogs and stuff. Right. That after doing that, I was like, I'm only going to eat food that I'm willing to kill myself. <laughs> and of course, that would never practically happen. So I essentially, you know, tricked myself to become a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, I, I commend you on it. It's not necessarily my scene. I think if I had started younger, I probably would have had a different perspective on it than waiting to eighth grade and having to dissect the frog and the fetal pig. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty gross stuff at that point. I mean, I, 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 I had to cheat a little bit because, like, when I, when I went to go spend time with the Yurok, mm-hmm. saying that you don't eat salmon is like, you know, RCU saying, like, I don't drink. And I go, like, well, you mean alcohol? No, I don't. I don't drink anything. I don't drink water. I don't drink milk. I don't drink right. anything. I'd be like, "How are you surviving?" <laughs> so for the salmon people, for the buffalo people, they there's no conception of like not eating their food because, like with that Inuit example, in the old days, if you couldn't digest buffalo, you pretty much died because right. that's that's what they ate. That, um, that was ninety five percent of the diet. Yeah, and it's like life revolved around those, we'll call them crops. They mm-hmm. revolved around the, the movement of the buffalo, everyone's clothes, like lamp oils, you know, all sorts of medicines came from uh, either the buffalo or from the areas where the buffaloes fed and, and lived and thrived. And for those who've seen Dances with Wolves, they know that the Lakota people packed up their villages and they followed the buffalo. There was like this symbiotic relationship with these animals. Yeah, these these are very interesting times. And you brought up something that I, that I would like to get your perspective on. So you talked to your parents. Uh, your parents are immigrants as well, or are they or were they first generation? They're they're immigrants. I was okay. actually born overseas, but came here when I was really young. Okay. Uh, so your child, your child, if you decide to have one, will be first generation like myself. First generation born is is what I'm getting at. Um, in talking to your parents and finding out what you thought would have been exotic, would you try to recreate your great-great-grandparents' recipes that your parents and grandparents grew up with from a non-industrialized version and see how those would come out for you? For sure. It's like the, you know, Most of us have gone to tons of Indian restaurants, and South Indian restaurants have these like fermented crepes. Mm-hmm. Uh, North Indian restaurants have a lot of breads, a lot of rice, a lot of curries. The difference wasn't in the preparation. The difference was, I did, like, the, like chicken tikka would have been like chicken tikka, or like you know, spinach curry would have been spinach curry. But instead of spinach, they would have used something probably much more bitter, much more earthy, much more green. 
the chicken curry wouldn't have been tomato based. It would have been like, you know, heavily, you know, uh, spiced with other raw herbs and fresh herbs. Um, so it, it wouldn't have been that much more difficult to prepare, but it probably would have been a lot, it would have tasted a lot different and I wouldn't have been used to those tastes. Mm -hmm. Um, with the, with what we've seen with the Apache and the Lakota and then, you know, the tribes in California and everywhere else, uh, would you like to see a restaurant movement based on those types of foods? Huh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, our, our main character, Chef Nephi Craig, uh, from the White Mountain Apache Reservation, he was building a restaurant. Um, and that restaurant was going to be based on Apache uh, ingredients that we're all familiar with. You know, there would have been elk, there would have been squash, um, but he would have prepared them in really, really, you know, traditional ways with a lot of modern cooking techniques. Um, and uh, I, I, that 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 restaurant that he built is a fantastic one. It, it kind of boggles me that there aren't more regional Native American-driven cuisine because the best corn I've had has, was with, you know, Oaxacan and Mayan uh, corn farmers in southern Mexico where corn originated. You know, some of the best chocolates I've had were also in Mexico that have a, you know, five, seven, ten thousand year chocolate tradition. So the places where these foods originated have, have, have the wildest, most interesting recipes. And I think they'd all surprise us. How are you on not my, or not on my 600 pound life at this point with the way you talk about food and everything that you're eating? What, what was that? <laughs> I said, how are you not on that TLC show, my 600 pound life at this point? Yeah. <laughs> My, my my last film, Thirty One Hundred Running to Come, was about the world's longest running race. So every time I do a food movie, I do a sports movie. <laughs> well, Sanjay, it sounds like you're having fun. You're educating yourself. You're educating society. Uh, you're not hitting over. You know, you're not hitting people over the head with a giant mallet, trying to see force them to see things from a you know one sided perspective. You're just opening the door for them, which I greatly appreciate, and I think that's far more needed these days than uh, what we've been seeing the last five, six, seven years. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I, I so appreciate your work and your time. Thank you for giving me access to your amazing platform. Oh, please. You know, I, I give you the credit that you deserve, and, you know, thank you for uh, for being you, man, because, you know, like I said, you're not pushing an agenda. You're just opening a door, and I think that's far more persuasive than trying to hammer people in. Let's hope it all works. <laughs> so, Sanjay Rawal, where can we find you and the documentary on social media if we want to connect, see some clips, check things out, so on and so forth? The the film's on Instagram, at Gather Film. I'm on Instagram, at Mr. Sanjay R, S-A-N-J-A-Y-R, and uh, pretty much where I live. <laughs> you live on Instagram these days? I do. <laughs> Perfect. Sanjay Rawal, thank you so much for your time. Gather comes out again Tuesday, September 8th on iTunes and Amazon. Well worth the watch. It's enlightening, and it's going to make you hungry. So two bonuses. You're going to get uh, your DoorDash fix, and you're going to get a movie out of it. <laughs>